This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Designing Consequences. OPSEC for Leakers. CanCon Gaming. And the Haunted Items of eBay. It has come to pass. The new third edition of Unknown Armies is in stores now. Unknown Armies is a modern-day occult role-playing game about broken people who conspire to fix the world. The new edition has a completely new character creation system. Now, more than ever, each character's attributes revolve around their wounded and worsening psychological state. The third edition also has a whole new way for GMs to focus play on the group's communal goal to change the world. And the myriad ways things are likely to go horribly, horribly wrong. Unknown Army's third edition has three core books. Play for players, run for GMs, and reveal the Book of the Weird for everyone. Buy them individually, or in a deluxe set whose slipcase has a magnetic clasp and unfolds to become a GM screen. Read more at atlas-games.com slash unknownarmies. Or leave immediately for your local game store. Because Unknown Armies is there, right now. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the shag-carpeted confines of the gaming hut. But here, we are in sort of design mode. We can see our graph paper all spilled out. Um, perhaps our laptops are open, which would be rude in any other context in the gaming yeah, hut. Peter Frampton can't help us here. He cannot help us. Although, Peter Frampton is something of an effective consequence. Because that's, right, that's yeah. what we're doing here. We're designing effective consequences, and specifically along the lines of the Cthulhu Confidential one-to-one -one and Yellow King RPG-style consequence cards. Robin, why don't you let the children who have been so unfortunate as to not see them hear about the consequence cards and what makes them good? Okay, and uh, later we're going to zoom back out again and look at how to do this in other games. So right. I don't want to just talk about the particular design issues of these two games, but rather what you can apply from this to others. So I guess let's put a pin in the descriptions of how the cards work in those games and just talk about consequences in general for just a sec. So what I mean by consequence here is something that happens as the result of a test or challenge or resolution role or whatever you call it in your particular system. In, in these two games, we call it a test. And when you make a role to see if something happens, if you succeed or fail, uh, there is, of course, always a question of whether you succeed or fail at the task immediately at hand, but it is also frequently interesting, and this is uh, by no means unique to uh, these games. In fact, I think we would be hard-pressed to come up with a game where you don't have any kind of ongoing status effects, like, you know, having a hold place on you in, in a fight in D&D &D or, uh, you, you know, the the way that uh, what happens if you... Uh, use your passions in uh, Pendragon and so forth. So the idea is that apart from whether you succeed or fail at this given obstacle, there's some other thing that then comes into the narrative that your character in particular has to deal with. And so 
in the context of uh, Gumshoe Wonder One, your character can get either a uh, problem card or an edge card out of certain situations. And sometimes you could even wind up with uh, both. And so what is it that makes one of these effects interesting or not interesting? And do they all have to be equally interesting? Uh, what would you say to that first question, Ken? I think that uh, not all consequences have to be equally interesting because not all consequences are equally interesting in the simulative reality or genre of the game. Uh, consequence of having a big black eye so that you have a shiner and people notice you is pretty interesting, but it is certainly differently affecting than, you know, having your leg broken. That has a lot of effects over and above the fact that people also notice you because you're limping everywhere. Right. And uh, I, I agree completely with that. And, and getting any sort of consequence, especially one that is marked by some kind of token, which is why I'm using cards in these games, despite the handling cost of them, is that there's just something about physicalizing that or having some sort of ritual to having that happen to your character, the same as getting a little token next to your miniature that says that you've got a, a hold spell placed on you. There's something about that that when you get it, and if you want to get rid of it, uh, there's a uh, there's an emotional charge when you first get the card. If it's a good card, there's another emotional card when you have wind up spending it because you're happy to get a benefit, but at the same time, there's a, the wistful sadness of having to uh, spend it and say goodbye to it. And uh, particularly in the Yellow King, uh, where there aren't the equivalent of edge cards, there aren't the advantage cards. There's just two types of problem cards. There's the shock cards, which uh, register your mental state, and then the injury cards, which are your physical state. They sort of hang over you. And in, the, in that game, you can get an injury card that has no other effect. But just being an injury card is trouble because once you get three of them, you die. Or once you get three shock cards, you go irrevocably mad. But as you were saying, not all of them have to be as interesting as all of the other ones. And in fact, that's a nearly impossible design goal, right? So, for example, a problem card that's just a meat and potatoes kind of basic negative consequence card in one-to-one -one is pulled muscle. And as you mentioned in your example, there's... You know, that's an obvious thing that you could experience as a, a detective hunting down Cthulhu-y things in the 30s. In fact, it's a staple card that we'll probably use in every one-to-one -one, uh, iteration that has any sort of physicality to it at all. And so here, the uh, consequence is take a minus one penalty to your next general physical test and minus one to the one after that, then discard this card. So that gives you the feeling uh, the emotional feeling of being hurt rather than just losing a number of hit points that are completely abstracted. And then a couple of events, right? There the minus two penalty, the minus one penalty, and then you get to get rid of it. You get to have a, a bit of relief on that. So that's one kind of your basic meat and potatoes, just a little penalty or some minor thing. Uh, it's not super exciting, not super interactive, but it still has some emotional effect on you. The next interesting th thing to do when designing consequences is to give the player a choice to make. So I have an example here, Ken, but uh, do you want to see if you can riff one off of the top of your head? Uh, an uh, consequence gives you a choice. Um, yeah. the, well, the classic example of that is some sort of mind control where uh, the creature has possessed you if they're a ghost or, or put a, a whammy on you if they're a necromancer, and you are compelled to attack uh, an ally, and you might either just get to choose which ally you attack, 
You probably get to choose how you attack them. And you might also get a choice of, if you don't want to attack an ally and you resist with all the fiber of your being, take Umpty Ump damage yourself because the feedback from the spell starts burning away at your nervous system or whatever, right? Right. And a choice is always emotionally appealing because, first of all, it gives you something to do. It's active. You as a player get to control an outcome and weigh the costs and benefits of doing two separate things. And an example of that in a gumshoe one-to-one edge card, that's one of the positive cards, is a card called Whew! And in that, that means and something has happened in the challenge that you, uh, you know, there's some sort of close call or something represents an emotional boost for your character. And the mechanic is spend for a push of any kind or an extra die on any test. So in Gumshoe One-to-One, those are both really strong benefits. And so now you're, it's like, well, which one do I need the most? And, uh, and so it's a great card to receive. Uh, you can sort of think ahead of time of, you know, when am I going to really hold on to this? You can get into the emotional spiral of, do I want to spend this now or do I want to wait till later, which is inherent to all the spends in all the gumshoes. So that gives you, uh, the player, something to do and think about that is uh, more interactive. Another example of choice in uh, both of these uh, systems is a card that, uh, a negative card that hangs over you until you agree to do something that you're you're paying a cost for. So uh, there's the sourpuss card that you get if you are trying to wisecrack your way out of a particular situation, but you suffer a setback on your roll. You don't roll that well. So instead of being uh, funny, you just sort of annoy and, and vex everyone around you, which is an experience that neither you or I can have ever, ever had, had that sort of backfire from a misfired joke, right? That's alien to you as it is to me. All of our jokes land perfectly, like Olympic gymnasts. Right. Uh, but here, uh, the mere mortal uh, character who receives this card gets the effect, until you haul off and clock someone, you can't spend pushes on interpersonal abilities. So that's a penalty. That's a denial effect. Uh, in general, denials, uh, as a consequence, I think, are, are weak. And in uh, a lot of early iterations of D&D, for example, a lot of the effects were denial effects that would cost your character a turn in combat or slow you, or that would just make it harder for you to do things. And that makes sense in a sort of a war game uh, perspective that the original design came out of. But then when you think about how fun is this at the table in a game where, you know, a round of combat where, where you're, you're up to go uh, can take a few minutes and then you have to wait another 10 minutes while everybody else does something for you to come around to miss your spot for basically 20 minutes of play. That's kind of unsatisfying, deeply unsatisfying. So when you're designing consequences, avoid denial effects unless they're countered by something that you can do to get out of them and pay the price. And you've already given an example of that with your mind control example. And uh, here with Sourpuss, the effect is until you haul off and clock someone, you can't spend pushes on interpersonal abilities, meaning that you have the power to decide when to get rid of that denial effect by doing something active. But of course, that something active is also going to turn into a different negative consequence, unless you play your cards right. Right. Ha ha! Another, I think, really effective class of consequences is something that gives you a 
future control over the story so that it uh, just signifies something that you are going to get to do later. And again, you're going to think about how am I going to make this happen? But again, it's all about getting characters to do things, to take actions, and to... Uh, so basically, you're giving the players uh, sort of story power that they can cash in later. So again, in Gumshoe One to One, one of the potential cards is Charlie Chaplin owes you. You can find out in the, one of the mysteries that uh, Charlie Chaplin is uh, being uh, watched by this uh, nasty dude. And if you go and tell Charlie, he's, he's very grateful to know that. And so you can then uh, get him to do something for you uh, later. And we've heard back from playtesters uh, various all sorts of different favors that they've gotten. Uh, it's not hard-coded into the scenario exactly what favor you need from Charlie Chaplin in order to solve the mystery. And so that uh, is not only active, but it gives the players an opportunity to exercise their imagination and solve a problem and engage with the story, which I think is you know one of the strongest kinds of consequences you can uh, think of. So given the fun that you can have with consequences, is it a matter of just going through the pre-existing consequence states in an existing game, like dazed or stuck or uh, staggered or bled out or whatever that might already be in your game, making little cards and just handing them out like fun? Because I think those already exist for uh, D&D and uh, 13th Age and other standard role-playing games of the fun sort. Or is it a matter of taking the game that you're playing uh, and saying, besides the standard consequences of insane shot in the arm, whatever, are there more consequences that we can tease out? What do you think is the, is the play here? Is it to add consequences to your game or to merely cardify the consequences that already exist? The card, I think in an existing game, if it's just an existing status effect, you'll just go, Oh, that's a play aid, but you can activate that by building onto it. So for example, if there's a, a, a negative mental state that's specified in the game, uh, you can give a card that you have this state until you punch someone. Or So basically what I'm saying is rip off these ideas and import them into your own game. So that in an F20 game, you could absolutely have a card that says Elminster owes you a favor. Now, in a normal game, you would just say, oh, well, Elminster at the end says that he owes you a favor. But by putting that on a card and putting that in front of you, it is a reminder to the players that that wasn't just an idle comment that that was a story point that you get to pick up later. And I think that's where the, the power of um, making more of a point and a ritual out of narrative consequences comes in. And I just want to mention before we uh, break from this segment that you can have a lot of fun with this too, is that uh, just as, um, you know, once we saw the second generation of magic cards, because in a way this is sort of an exceptions-based mechanic being introduced into role-playing, uh, just the same way that Magic is an exceptions-based game where it has a very simple set of rules and the card text gives you specific contradictions that you can make to the rules. And so uh, one thing to look for are things that the entire group can then interact with in a fun and sometimes surprising way. Uh, so, for example, in The Yellow King, and I probably wouldn't be blowing this uh, if I didn't have a Kickstarter going, but I'm willing to reveal this to you now. This is, the I think, the favorite card that my playtest group has gotten so far. It's called the Vengeful Dead, uh, and this is what happens when you you suffer a haunting. It's a neg it's a uh, a shock card. Lose one point from your lowest pool each time one or more players break from the action to reference or discuss pop culture. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, so the, the, the ghosts are reaching through discussions of Taylor Swift, uh, into the alternate past of the Yellow King to exact right. the not, revenge. You're not literalizing that. Right. But it's something where, you know, Sweat acts as a clock for, for, for when the, when they manifest. Yes, exactly. And so the other players, what they do have a control over what, uh, what you do. And it's, uh, funny and also horrible. Yeah. Now that wouldn't be, um, just by itself, uh, that's just a rotten card because that just sticks you something bad. But then uh, there's a discard function as well, which is discard after a ghost encounter that does not leave you with a shock or injury card. So that's a twofold one where there's this cool, nasty effect that's kind of unpredictable and depends on the restraint of the other players. And then also there's something that you can do, which is let's go to the next ghost encounter and maybe this time I won't take a shock or injury. Right. And so that, again, is something that drives you into the uh, narrative. And you can also uh, have an interesting effect by saddling the player with a negative consequence card that they have a way of getting rid of, but also a incentive must be a nasty incentive to hold on to. And so I'm going to leave us with uh, Song of the Sign, which, of course, is one of the many shock effects that you can get if you're exposed to the yellow sign. And that's uh, so the negative, the basic negative attack is, is very simple. Minus one to composure tests, minus one to all other presence tests. So that's just a, a basic a negative. Negatives are uh, even a modifier of minus one is bad in gumshoe because it's a D6. It's a very coarse uh, system. But here's the rub. You may refresh any pool other than composure by committing murder. Oh, there you go. There you go. Uh, discard as recipient of the difficulty six morale test. So another player can notice that you're freaking out and try and get through to you and get rid of that card. But uh, let's just say that card was handed out and uh, more, at least one innocent person uh, died horribly so that someone else could refresh their first aid pool for a player character. So again, <laughs> that's an example of uh, giving not only choice, uh, but a rich story possibility that arises out of the consequence and makes the flow of consequences part of the flow of the narrative. As with a lot of uh, sort of big design uh, innovations, obviously these will iterate throughout not just future uh, Pelgrain one-to-ones and other perhaps other Pelgrain games, but also games other people design. You can start thinking about using consequences and using them to move in between levels of game, uh, metagame, intergame, player action, uh, character action, environmental action. And at the very least, it'll give you something else to do besides merely minus two while stunned to everything. So uh, think about that. We will probably respond to the consequences question later, depending, of course, on whether or not we draw the talk about consequences consequence. I've been covertly mentioning it like crazy these past few months. But now it's time for you to overtly announce... That the Yellow King role-playing game from Palgain Press is now on Kickstarter. Based on the influential horror tales of Robert W. Chambers. This latest gumshoe flagship title sends your players on a mind-bending journey through twisted histories and alternate selves. From Paris in 1895 to Europe's shattering 1947 Continental War. To the ruins of the Castain regime, to a world like our own, 
Or nearly so. When I played a section of the Paris sequence, I was the architecture student. Help us add even more content to all four of the core books, which nestle together as a single product in one elegant, not-to-mention-magnetic slipcase. We got chased by a spider statue. Also snap up our gorgeous found-object collage Paris source book, Absinthe in Carcosa. My character drank copiously and engaged in the witticisms of the doomed. And a novel by yours truly. Stretch a goal or two before the King in Yellow comes for you. Go to Kickstarter and search Yellow King Roleplaying Game. Or dare to look at the sinister link in the show notes. The retinal scan and the light but firm body pat-down that you underwent before listening to this segment indicate that you're once more within the top secret perimeter of the Tradecraft Hut. And this time around, uh, Patreon backer Stephen Brandon has a timely question, uh, which I will proceed to ask. After the recent Tradecraft and source protection debacle of Reality Winner's recent leak to The Intercept, what Tradecraft steps would you recommend to possible future leakers and player characters to help keep themselves safe? And before you answer this, I think one of the exciting things about 2017 is that each month comes along, we get to ask ourselves the question, whose novel are we living in now? And when someone named Reality Winner is the centerpiece of an espionage scandal, I think we know that Terry Southern uh, was writing this month. So good on you, uh, Terry Southern of Dr. Strangelove fame, uh, or, you know, possibly just Ben Johnson, because it's a, a metonymic name if I ever heard one. And so that's, uh, that's what I have to offer to this uh, subject. So Ken... Do you need to briefly recap the reality winner story for those who've been uh, avoiding spycraft the last few weeks? I, I think it's worth doing because it is such a heartwarming tale of nobody doing their jobs except the federal government. And since that never happens, it's always <laughs> worth hearing a little bit about it. In this particular case, a uh, Air Force veteran named Reality Winner took a job with an NSA contractor named Pluribus International. Uh, she worked at their facility in Fort Gordon in, in Augusta, Georgia. Uh, again, uh, Pluribus International, clearly written by Terry Southern. Yes, and, and founded by the son of spy novelist Charles McCary. So... Even better. Yes. Uh, it, it, it's, it's a metafiction in joke from Terry Southern. So, uh, she worked for uh, these guys and at some point heard that there was an NSA document about potential Russian attempts to hack voting machines. And she used her NSA search, search them up computer and uh, found the document, printed it, carried it out of Fort Gordon through probably her uh, backpack or something, because it's just, it's just an NSA major cyber command. Why search people? Yeah. Carries well, the document and, and out. need to know apparently is out the window in the computer age as well. Oh, absolutely. She, uh, she carries it out, puts it in an envelope, postmarked Augusta, Georgia, where she lives and mails it off to the intercept. Uh, the intercept then does their part to ruin everyone's life by not stripping the metadata, making a color copy and showing the postmark of the envelope to the NSA when they request a uh, comment on, is this a real document? And the NSA says, we'll get right back to you on that as soon as we're finished tracking the metadata and finding out who had access to this document. Now it's right. important and to once know. More in a, uh, we're living in a satirical reality note. She sent them that document because she was annoyed by Glenn Greenwald, one of the major voices and founder of the Intercepts, uh, dismissal of the importance of Russian 
meddling in American democracy and wanted to prove him wrong. Yes. Uh, which uh, we could spend 15 minutes just on the different level of levels of irony in, in that. Uh, right. But we, but we have a, uh, we have a hard time limit. And no, this is not the irony hut. So much more. No, all huts are the irony hut. Now uh, there's an irony meta hut that comments yes. on the other huts snarkily. Anyways, meanwhile, the NSA, even without getting those data, once they know that the leak has happened because the intercept is asking about it, they look up who had access to that document. There were six names. They went to all the computers involved and found that from her work computer, Reality Winner had emailed the intercept and said, well, this is perhaps not exactly the Hercule Poirot uh, case that it might have looked at the outside. They uh, had the FBI bring her in. They braced her under questioning. She confessed to having done it. Open and shut case. Now, there is a possible extra shoe to drop because at one point she did, while at the Air Force, Google the question, do top secret computers know when a thumb drive is inserted? <laughs> so congratulations, Jason Bourne winner. <laughs> Good job. Yeah, and so they, and it's like, do you mean metaphysically or just on a, yeah. on a practical level? So many possible. I, I urge you all to Google that question. <laughs> what fun. Yes. With, with, but wait until you've encrypted uh, your, your browser, which I guess is starting to bring us to the, the, the question, <laughs> which is what other than everything <laughs> should the player characters who wish to uh, leak important talk secret data uh, need to do in order to not wind up like a reality winner. So th don't type in that question is number one. But what do you actively do to cover your, your OPSEC tracks? Um, the first thing that you need to do, whether you are a leaker or a journalist uh, receiving a leak, is scrub the metadata out of the document because documents contain a zillion different kinds of metadata. Some of the leak stuff in the election uh, uh, dumps from the DNC and whatnot. Some of those documents had places where the guy who had hacked it uh, or hacked it, fished it out of the DNC's email had hit save. And once you hit save, you like little, put a little marker in your, in the, in the document that someone has saved this document. I mean, we're all familiar with track changes. Leave that on, leave that off. That creates metadata. Uh, anytime that you, that you do anything to a document, it creates metadata. Now, some machines Especially create. if it's ever been in Word. The, right. Yes. You know, there's a ton of cruft that Word yeah. introduces into everything. So don't use Word spies. Right. Yes. Some machines actually introduce metadata on their own. So digital photos include a ton of metadata based on, you know, where you took it, uh, what time, uh, lots of other stuff that it talks to the, the camera on. And that's not something you did. It's just the nature of taking a digital photo. It's called EXIF data. And then, uh, printers all have, uh, yellow micro dots hidden in their printout, uh, invisible to the naked eye, but you can scan them with a special scanner and you can individually source a document to the individual printer and possibly to the individual time it was printed at the printer. So, uh, everyone is now working for the pointy haired boss who is tracking your, your Xeroxing. Anytime you use a printer, the printer contains metadata. So you have to, uh, go through a fairly elaborate set of hacks to either make your printer stop doing that or to take the document, take it to a, another computer, a clean computer, turn it into a PDF and then scrub the PDF digitally. And then you will get a scrubbed PDF. Now, of course, the record of you having done the first three things is still somewhere, but hopefully you've got a computer that is isolated from the net and that you set on fire after you're done screwing around with the NSA. So it, it is possible to sort of scrub the metadata out of a document, but it's a long and 
a tiresome process. Also, don't send it to someone who's going to show the NSA the original. That would be a terrible idea. The sort of best practices for journalists is rather than send the original document or a, or a very good copy of the original document is to either retype the document or just refer to its government tracking number and say, according to document GS1975575, uh, this thing is happening. Can you comment on it? And they're like, holy crap, someone's lot, uh, leaked GS175575, but they don't have the original metadata to use and they don't have any of these sort of, um, uh, individual things because you can put like, uh, some pages, uh, some versions of that document will have a uh, reference to Kazakhstan on page three and some will have it on page four. And so they know who has page three or who has page four and they can use that as an internal uh, tracking system. That actually goes back to the British in the eighties would do that with documents because, uh, they were worried about leakers. And so they would physically retype them to alter the page spacing so that when you would see a leaked document, they would know whose office it came out of. To back up just a step, one thing that you're going to be doing as investigative cleric characters is doing an investigation to see if you can trust the journalist that you're handing the document off to. Or, the, because, or whichever source it is, you may not be handing it to a journalist. Right, or <laughs> whoever it is. But in this case, you know, maybe reconsider uh, giving a document to a journalist as a screw you. <laughs> <laughs> well, know that, know that more people are screwed in any screw you than just the you. <laughs> yes, exactly. Every journalist, in theory, goes to the original source to request comment because otherwise you just get phony documents as Dan rather learned to his peril. And so you, even if you are a crusading truth telling journalist, you have to go talk to the CIA a lot. If you're getting leaked CIA information, most journalists and usually the intercept have better protocols in place. And it is about, you know, trusting that individual journalist. Now in a supernatural game, even if they're a crusading good journalist, they might still be under the command of vampires or whatever. And so that's a sort of a second level of investigation that you should also do. Uh, in, in a game, you can either make creating the metadata a, a, a task that you have to roll for, or in a nice black agents, I would just say, you know, spend a point of, um, uh, of, of digital intrusion to strip the metadata and, and then you're good because it's a, it's a pretty boring thing to do. And it's certainly a boring thing to do in game when you could be shooting someone. But I think having the knowledge that you have to strip the EXIF data out of it is a, a good thing. Now, the fun thing, the more fun thing is if you're playing the investigators and you're trying to figure out where the photo was taken, knowing about metadata, knowing about EXIF provides you a fun piece of detail you can drop in and you can say, Oh, I'm going to see if the EXIF data has been stripped out of that photo. And then people are like, oh, that's cool. And so then the GM will say, all right, spend a point of electronic surveillance to to dive into it or uh, do a, a, a hack on it with digital uh, intrusion. And my thought as a player when you say that is, can I spend another point to put in phony EXIF data that's going to mislead them? Better and better. Nothing, nothing more fun than that. So there's uh, any number of, of things you can start doing with metadata because, of course, Structurally, security firms and security agencies trust their security because without it, you go all James Jesus Angleton and nothing gets done. So if you put in phony metadata, that is a much better screw you than releasing the document in many cases, because at the very least, you can set up a delightful mole hunt. And at the very worst, you can actually frame somebody. Yes. Look around at the, your dumbest colleague, the one that the GM has... <laughs> set up as being the obnoxious slob who's uh, out for your job and uh, buy yourself, uh, you know, an extra 48 hours by uh, putting 
uh, their uh, geolocation into it. <laughs> right. Now, even uh, Reality Winner, uh, it took about a month for her to get caught. So, even making every imaginable mistake, the wheels of justice grind slow. Because, first off, the NSA had to discover that there had been a leak, which didn't happen for three weeks. Then it took them a little while to sort of narrow it down. That took about two days. Then the FBI brings her in in another three days. Now, if you are the sort of international jet set run and gun Jason Bourne super spies, the fact that the NSA finds out you leaked three weeks ago means too bad. Haha, I'm in Kazakhstan. You can't do anything about it. So know that even in these sorts of circumstances, you can blow security as long as you also plan to blow Augusta, Georgia, and or the NSA's jurisdiction. Right. But in the Bourne universe, right. Treadstone, it doesn't take them three weeks. No, it doesn't. It does not take a couple of scenes. Right. So it, you're, you're the question here that you as a player need to know from your GM is whether you're operating in a realistic uh, dust mode or in the super thriller, uh, super sped up Jason Bourne mode. Right. And so again, as it always comes up in these tradecraft discussions, no, which level of reality heightening you're dealing with, because that's going to affect uh, how long you can rely on the incompetence of, of the system. Because Treadstone's still incompetent, but they're just incompetent at a much faster speed than any real government agency could aspire to. Well, I think uh, we, however, will be judged as incompetent if we don't uh, expeditiously uh, move like Jason Bourne, possibly uh, rolling under this uh, steel door and shooting off a few uh, theatrical, if ineffective, bullets and heading to our next segment. What did Isaac Newton discover in an alternate 1666? He discovered the way that alchemical truths can be... That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the Best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfagelm. Ask for Askfagelm by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This episode also brought to you by Patreon backers, exactly like... Christopher Gunning. Neil Kaplan. Urs Blumentritt. Wayne Peterson. And Brian Thomas. It's time once again to Ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. 
Just in time for Canada Day, Patreon backer Jake Cotter asks Canon Robin, what would be your recommendations for running a CanCon game? CanCon, of course, refers to Canadian content in jaunty and delightful fashion. And just our luck, we have Canadian content here on the podcast, as we do every week. Robin DeLaws. Robin, uh, start us up. Now, I assume Canadian content means that the game has to take place in Canada. It can't just be you take Canadians and put them in somewhere that's actually exciting, right? Uh, well, actually. Actually. Uh, I'm assuming CanCon refers to the government regulations surrounding the production of culture and its ability to get uh, favorable airplay, for example, in the radio industry or uh, funding as in the film industry. And so in that instance, the people who are making it make it Canadian. So, for example, uh, several of the big uh, hits produced by the band Heart in the 70s counted as CanCon and were played a lot on Canadian radio because the record was produced in a Vancouver studio. So, so then running any Robin Laws game counts as CanCon. So here you go. Here's how to run a CanCon game. You run an F20 game in an extremely detailed world where occasionally you meet a knowledgeable yet occasionally lascivious wizard named Elminster. There you go. You can't be can-conner than that. Right. Now, I, I assume that just by playing a, a game by Ed Greenwood or by me or by uh, the uh, Dave many other, uh, too numerous to mention because I'll accidentally leave somebody out and, and uh, cause a, ker a kerfuffle, which is the worst thing that can happen in Canada is a kerfuffle, so you don't, you don't want one of those. Um, it, historically, uh, Canada has punched above its weight in tabletop role-playing because you can be a freelancer here because we have a healthcare system. But again, uh, Jake is not asking about our healthcare system. I'm sure he knows that well, already. He's asked a Canadian, which means he's either hearing about your healthcare system or about the War of 1812. There are no yes. other topics. The implicit question is how soon can you say something oblique and smug about America? So right. yeah. this segment gets all the CanCon points we want. So we're right up there with Barracuda at this point. But I think he's probably asking for some sort of relationship to Canadian history. So I, I gave this a good thing. Um, and, of course, the thing about Canadian history is that um, with a few vivid yet also sad and disappointing exceptions, uh, our domestic history is mostly about having meetings. <laughs> and, uh, for example, the big defining crisis slash transformative moment about all of our different colonies before they all coalesced together through Confederation in Canada was what was called the fight for responsible government. And by fight... Yeah, there were a couple of rebellions in 1837 and a couple of people got hanged. But mostly it was about crusading newspaper men taking on the unaccountable power of the family compact. And this is in the uh, early part of the uh, 1800s. And Why, it's just like Game of Thrones. Yes. For <laughs> each proto-province of the other had this struggle where the entrenched families who ran everything called the family compact were uh, gradually displaced in favor of something closer to the set of parliamentary rights that English citizens enjoyed uh, back home. So how do you make that fun enough to gain? Well, to do that, you have to go all the way across the country to British Columbia. So the thing about British Columbia is that the further you get out to the balmy climes of the uh, West Coast, uh, which all of you have spiritually embedded in you if you watch uh, television shows that are shot in Vancouver, which probably all of you do because all, they all <laughs> half are. the nerd shows are shot there. So the further you get out there, the, the sort of the, the looser and crazier and more spiritual you become. If you just stayed in Ontario, you know, had that Scots-Irish 
heritage and you thought about moving to British Columbia and you go, oh, I, I don't know about that. You you can put your toes in the in the mild water. I I, I can't deal with that. I'm going to stay here in cold Ontario and be stern. Uh, but the people who didn't do that, um, they were a little looser, shall we say. So Amor de Cosmos would be the centerpiece of a My British Columbia Secret History of British Columbia game. Uh, he was a, a born William Alexander Smith. Other than the fact that he renamed himself for his love of the cosmos and was a, a spiritual thinker, um, otherwise he's got the uh, that whole pattern of rising from being a muckraking journalist to eventually becoming the second premier of British Columbia <laughs> and then having a further exciting, you know, he's an eccentric guy who has carries a cane. He's got a temper. And uh, after he's premier, he goes up to the gold rush and uh, uh, goes bust trying to uh, create a food service for the, the uh, uh, gold rush. And so anyway, he's a as close as we get to a fun, colorful, foundational character. And I would try to uh, either take his sort of mystical bent into creating sort of a, a secret history around him or just do it as a, a drama system uh, game, which might or might not, depending on how the players want to go, eventually wind up nerd tropped in uh, one way or the other. So we're learning now that British Columbia is if Northern California had a Northern California. Uh, it does. It's called British Columbia. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, yes. Okay, so Amor de Cosmos is your case. I think that uh, my Canadian content guy would be the pirate Bill Johnston who was born in Canada in 1782, spied for the Americans in the War of 1812, and pirated around Lake Ontario uh, for a good long time until retiring, running uh, smuggling uh, things back and forth across the border, but was radicalized by the uh, the hated British raiding uh, supply ship for the Republic of Canada, which was led by former Toronto Mayor William Lyon Mackenzie on an island in, uh, the I guess, uh, near Detroit, somewhere in uh, Lake Huron, I suppose. And uh, they burned his supply ship. Uh, later, the recipient of one of the aforementioned hangings. Uh, exactly, exactly. Was. But they burned the uh, Caroline and uh, angered former pirate and spy Bill Johnson, who comes out of retirement like Rooster Cogburn to... Um, uh, ineffectually attack Canada with a couple of hundred American buddies and nothing happens. They had the battle of the windmill and that's a fun thing to have. And then he just retires and goes back to being a smuggler because turns out that didn't work out. So I think that sort of you take all the pirate tropes and you just move them to Lake Huron and Lake Ontario and surround them with Bill Johnson, who has the least piratey name ever. Right. I think and that, so the that game, would be a great Obviously, one. if we're going to have a CanCon game, that's what right. the heroic, sensible Canadians Right. Fighting off, this Fighting off the, villain, the depredations Johnston. of Bill Johnston. Bill, right. and his nickname is probably Somewhat American. <laughs> Bill Somewhat American Johnston. <laughs> yes, yeah, suspiciously American is right. his... Uh, yes. well, I, that looks like American syrup. Oh, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know. Just it's good syrup. That A lot of that. So I think that I think Bill Johnston could be a great CanCon adventure, and you could do uh, full-on sh- swashbuckling. It's just that the stakes are super low, and only one boat ever gets sunk. Well, if we want uh, bigger stakes and uh, and, and may- maybe also some bigger spikes Hello. and a more epic sweep, <laughs> I think really the big Canadian narrative that uh, you would be fun to wrap a secret occult history around is the building of the Canadian Pacific Railway, because you guessed it, after the fight for responsible government, the other defining event of Canadian history was building a transit system. So 
uh, the uh, promise was made to British Columbia in 1871 that uh, the federal government would build a railway that would go the rest of the way across the continent to them, even though at that time they were just assuming that they would be able to find a suitable pass in the Rocky Mountains to send this train through. The pass had not been found, but uh, that did not. The, the, this project was deemed shovel-ready, so it was promised in 1871. The last spike, uh, which was a good, sensible Canadian iron spike, none of this ceremonial silver or gold nonsense, was driven in 1885. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, it had to overcome all sorts of obstacles, uh, including government graft. There was a big uh, scandal involving our uh, Prime Minister John, Sir John A. Macdonald, uh, our, our founding Prime Minister, which accounts for the now we finally made him kind of cuddly uh, by forgetting his history, but he was always a very ambiguous figure because he was corrupt, because he was taking big bank, uh, raking it off this uh, uh, railroad deal. Um, also, the uh, railroad deal was interrupted by the Northwest Rebellion, and so uh, that's the uh, famous uh, Second Rebellion of the uh, the Métis people along with uh, their leader, Louis Riel. I think to really do that justice in gaming, someday I hope that we have a Canadian game designer of an indigenous background or who otherwise has the experiential authority to tell that story from the Métis point of view. Traditionally in Canada, that story has not been told from their point of view, and you get a really different story. Um, but in this instance, you can uh, cast him sympathetically as just one of the fabrics of uh, this great weaving together of, of the railroad. And as we know, uh, once you've got a railroad going, you've got ley lines, you've got uh, territories, you've got all sorts of uh, interesting obstacles that you could uh, uh, add in some sort of, uh, you could do like a, a gumshoe version where you every week you have to investigate the new impediment uh, to the uh, building of the railroad. Or uh, you could do basically the Canadian version of the uh, campaign that you just wrapped up uh, doing an unknown army's version of uh, Western Canadian history. I think another fine piece of CanCon is Operation Morning Light, which was a joint U.S.-Canadian operation to recover the pieces of the Soviet satellite Cosmos 954 that fell out of space and smashed up around Great Slave Lake in uh, 1977, I believe, and oh, no, 78, and it, uh, it sort of rained radioactive debris all across the Canadian Arctic. And the Canadians were mad at the Americans because we hadn't told them it was coming or something like that. And so Operation Morning Light, I think, makes a really good possibility for a drama system game where you're playing the Americans and the Canadians who have to cooperate because you're out in the middle of the Arctic. The Canadians are in charge which irritates the Americans no end, I'm sure. The Americans have got all the technical expertise, which irritates the Canadians no, no end. And then you can either introduce sort of a weird X-Files-y theme to it, like what knocked the Soviet satellite out? Why was it? did it drop off the radar? There's all kinds of questions and controversies around it because it was the 1970s and because it, it involved America and Canada having to cooperate, which uh, we do really well, but like many uh, old married couples, we love to bicker while we do it. So There might just be some badinage. You know? There might be some badinage. And so I think that that would make a great sort of a um, uh, snow uh, outside, sort of a Arctic uh, imprisoned sensibility for your um, 
uh, adding that sort of bottle episode, sort of dramatic tension to the episode. You've sort of got a limited cast of NPCs, but you can pull in, you know, pretty much anything. You can pull in Wendigo, the, the, the short story or the concept. You can pull in, uh, UFOs and the X-Files. You can just talk about radiation. You can have mutants or you can just have a straight up, uh, bureaucratic, uh, trying to recover this radioactive, uh, debris from all across the Canadian wilderness while the human relations are just as um, uh, radioactive as the actual pieces of metal. I think that would be fun and it would be super Canadian because it takes place out in the snowy wastes where uh, Canada looks for its inspiration. Now, to be really, I think, true to the CanCon uh, spirit, I think the ideal CanCon uh, series would be a uh, bubble gumshoe game in which you were playing rangers in their early teens, uh, forest rangers, as it were, except... You work for uh, Paranormal Canada, and each episode, uh, you go to a different part of Canada associated with a different Fortean event, because as longtime listeners to the show know, we have lots of Fortiana here, from uh, UFOs to Bigfoots to uh, the aforementioned Ogopogo to the uh, Oak Island mystery. And then each episode, you go somewhere, learn a bunch of uh, edifying Canadian history, and uh, solve the mystery in good, peaceable, uh, sensible Canadian manner and bring uh, peace, order, and good government to the werewolves and the ghosts and uh, and the aliens. Right. And uh, and they would have perhaps a meeting at which the sacred beaver would provide, uh, rather the magic beaver would provide donuts. Right. Well, the magic beaver gives you your assignment. At the right. Beginning of each and donuts at the end. That, exactly. It's called a it's called a, a capper, Robin. Yeah, yeah. He's, he he congratulates you and says, "Crawlers, eh? Crawlers, um, eh?" So anyway, at this point, uh, everybody uh, head on over to Queens Park, have some delicious uh, uh, celebratory Canada Day government issued hot dogs, and rejoin us after this commercial for our final segments. The skies are dim always since the maker died. Time to weave a tale, my friends. A tale of good-hearted puppets in a bad-hearted world. In John Scott Tyne's puppet land, you rise up against the savagery of Punch, the maker killer. You battle his army of nutcrackers and his terrible boys sewn from the flesh of the maker of all puppets. Seek the gorgeous new hardback edition at your nearest retailer of beautiful yet sinister role-playing games. Featuring full-color paintings from Samuel Araya. And tons of ready-to-play tales from... Kenneth Height. Aaron Dembo. And Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Are you ready to play? Because Punch and his boys are ready to play. Ready for you. If the confines are murky, you know that once more, we are in that most ill-defined yet mysterious of huts, the Elliptony Hut. And we can tell this uh, further by the fact that, oh, look, there's our friend the Grey Alien and the Nordic Alien. Uh, once more, they're enjoying a kombucha together. And if we look out the window, there is the alien big cat screeching out on the moor. This time around, uh, I reach deep, deep into the Elliptony Hut job jar and withdraw an article that I've been... Uh, sitting on for quite a while, and now that I look at it again, I wonder, why did we take so long to get to this? Because two years ago now, uh, in uh, 2015, the All, that's A-W-L, did a really great article on the subculture of people 
who buy and sell haunted items on eBay. So first of all, a, a tip, uh, we're all about the service here on uh, Ken and Robert Talk About Stuff. If you are going to sell a haunted item on eBay, you have to spe- include a disclaimer. And so like all good segments, we start with the disclaimer. You have to uh, state that any article listed as haunted, paranormal, magical, or mystical is offered for entertainment purposes only. And that, of course, is our credo here at, uh, at the podcast. So, Ken, what, where did your mind first wander once you reacquainted yourself with this delightful phenomena? <laughs> uh, the, <laughs> my mind first wanders to the fact that I've bought things off of eBay. <laughs> so uh, it's a good place to get like back issues of magazines, the Twilight Zone magazine. I don't know if anyone else remembers that, but it was edited for a while by TED Klein. And so there was some very good stuff in it. And I recently got a bunch of back issues of that. Another thing is that uh, one of my beloved Hawaiian shirts developed an irreparable tear. And rather than wait until I get back to Portland to buy another one, I thought, I'll go on eBay and buy as close to the same one as I can. And sure enough, there I am. And so the thought that if I'd only just spent a little more time goofing around <laughs> on the site. If you only typed in haunted shirt, Haunted Hawaiian Everything shirt, would have come out differently. Everything would have come out differently. Uh, I would I would have been super happy. So, the, 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 first of all, just the, the, remember, the reminder that this exists, that the great joys of American eccentricity and capitalism are blending here as they blend so many other places. Uh, it, it's just, it, it, it's a sensation of delight as well as a, how come I'm not running a haunted eBay auction site? What's wrong with me that I'm not monetizing this? <laughs> yeah, instead of having to sit around all day researching stuff and then thinking of elegant ways in which to form it into paragraphs, you could just, for example, uh, be like the uh, a gentleman who purchased a former mental health sanitarium uh, in Clovis, California. Uh, it's called the Hazelwood Sanitarium. Uh, years after it fell into disuse, a, a man uh, purchased it. And for a while, he turned it into a haunted house attraction. Now, the good civic fathers of Clovis, California, did not like the fact that um, crews were coming in doing reality shows with uh, pointing out how uh, haunted and terrifying this uh, dilapidated structure uh, was, as as city fathers are wont to do. I imagine people living near a haunted uh, former asylum uh, don't want to live near there. Their property values would be uh, positively affected if they somehow got rid of it. So the, the city demanded that the haunted house be brought up to code, including uh, conforming completely with the uh, the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, with all of the ramps and elevators that that implied. And therefore, the uh, property was condemned. But uh, the owner had the very clever idea of, I'm going to sell everything about this building on eBay. And so he, he like will even sell the tiles. And there's one particular couple who do their best to purchase every single item from this haunted house in order to one day rebuild it. Yeah. And if you can't think of a scenario that is based on that, you're, you're not even trying. We are here to help you. <laughs> but <laughs> no, really, we're, we're more here to make fun of you because that's a that's a that's the lowest slowest lob you can imagine. Right. Okay, so what what's the obvious scenario? First of all, just uh... all right. The obvious scenario is they the the final piece, the pièce de résistance from this, the rose window or the old hydrotherapy uh, uh, machine or or whatever is on sale, and these guys have 
you know, they've tapped out. They've, they've got taken as many mortgages as they can on their house. And again, I have no knowledge that the, I'm sure the real couple that's buying up an entire haunted asylum have excellent investments and, and right. are perfectly fine. And, and we're leaving out the names. You can right, see them yes. in the article, but you can we're figure it out. So. Anyhow, this, this couple has stretched themselves to the financial limit and must bring in the investigators. Now the investigators either have to steal the item from the seller or wait until it's sold and steal it in transit or get it from the eventual buyer. Or the investigators have to slowly and subtly sell off other pieces of the couple's collection and act as the middlemen so that they won't get traced. Or the thing is shipped and it's not right and something has gone wrong. Either it actually is super haunted and they have to sort of figure out how to unhaunt the machine or they have to find the really haunted one that got sold to the secret conspiracy of, of hauntologists that is, uh, that, that's driving up, uh, eBay haunting prices, uh, on, on other websites. And so it, it's sort of the, uh, the MacGuffin. And then you, which direction you spin the MacGuffin is there's, there's any number of possibilities. What else have we got besides the obvious one? And so that gives you a great twist where you don't know ahead of time that the haunted house that you're, uh, that you've, linked these horrible uh, events and murders to uh, what's actually rebuilt and shipped across the country so that part of the investigation is discovering that, in fact, this house was sold for parts on eBay and reassembled here. And in order to find the coffin containing the corpse of the ancient sorcerer that is responsible for all of these effects and is basically feeding all the way across the continent on people, the coffin didn't get sold. That was buried underneath and that was never found. And so... You actually have to go all the way to Clovis, California and, you know, dig up a rec center or a, a car rental uh, outlet in order to get to the, uh, the, the bones that you need to burn. Um, you could also start to get into some, and we've touched on this before, the idea that if items have magical power, if they contain mana, that makes them valuable in the underground occult economy. And um, maybe there's just something about the belief that is invested in all of these items, especially as people uh, vie for them, that means that they're just, they didn't necessarily even start out all that powerful, but because people have been bidding them up on eBay, uh, they've uh, become really numinous. And so uh, that the items themselves become the MacGuffin in a battle between uh, the good and the bad sorcerers. And you want to get the particularly uh, active items uh, away from them before they have this big power battery. And so it's not about creating a haunted house. It's about building a battery. And so once they finally have enough pieces, they'll have so much power that they'll be able to uh, uh, immunitize the, the inbreak of magical power. And then you'll be living in, in Shadowrun or whatever. And you, you definitely want to avoid that because the system is very complicated. <laughs> uh, the other possibility, a lot of these items are sold because they were attached to some family member and they died horribly or, or tragically. And it's like, oh, their spirit is in this item, but now I can't stand the, the psychic toll of living with it. Would you like to buy the locket that's haunted by my brother or the evil clown doll that's haunted by my cousin or whatever? There's someone who specializes in, in evil possessed dolls. Yeah, I'm sure there are. It implies that there are way more possessed dolls out there than I had ever anticipated. It also implies that there is a market for evil possessed dolls. And in, if the movies have taught me anything, it's that you didn't know it was an evil possessed doll when you brought it into your house except except now people are searching evil possessed doll right <laughs> the package says warning contains evil possessed doll right on it. one of the guys who sells things does the whole uh buy at your own risk in in big red letters on the listing right which brings up the other possibility of the uh 
the UPS guy has been possessed because he was carrying the evil doll. He keeps carrying all these evil and dolls. And the ghost has leapt from the doll into the UPS guy because what's more useful for mayhem wreaking? A guy with a brown truck or just some, you know, dumb old cabbage patch doll? Some yahoo with a weird doll fetish. Um, but, but the notion being that you've tracked whatever the phenomenon is to this person and then you go there and you say, oh, they were killed tragically or sadly or weirdly and no one knows uh, they're the only witness to the vampire or they're the only source of information or they're there. It's important that you find them, but they're dead. Ha ha. But then you discover that their personality was put into an evil doll and sold on eBay and you have to go find it. And by then the evil doll is causing a poltergeist effect and it's very dangerous. And so you have to not exorcise it because you need to talk to the spirit, but you have to control it, put a electric pentacle around it or something so that you can find out from the ghost what it knows and maybe that's the act of of uh that's the message it was trying to give to the living and once you found out oh it, it turns out he was killed by this vampire then it can pass on to the afterlife in a happy way and you and you solved two problems except for the problem of the person who's like i paid good money for an evil doll and now it's not evil give me my money back and you have perhaps you have to go jack another ups guy and steal a different evil doll for that guy and one of the uh, the doubtless true facts that i was unaware of until i read this article was that chairs in particular are able receptacles for the spirits of the dead now it makes sense uh because you know we, we always associate ghost possession with uh really interesting looking and conveniently portable objects like, uh, you know, pendants or, uh, you know, weapons or uh, what have you. But, you know, most of us do spend large chunks of our life in a large utilitarian bulky object known as a chair, right? So, you know, when I shuffle off this mortal coil, my, my desk chair might indeed uh, continue to, to house my spirit, which raises the possibility of a sort of a a Ghostbusters-style, uh, jokey supernatural uh, scenario where the difficulty is that the cursed object is just extremely cumbersome. And, you know, that you have, in order to do the ritual that unties the giant uh, spirit that is marching across the city, destroying it, you have to find the animating spirit anchor, which is, you know, an disused Aeron desk chair, and get it across town uh, intact. Or uh, so that gives you a, a sort of a, a an element of the of the absurd that I think is a, a intrinsic part of the story is that the uh, people's desire to take the mystical and make it quotidian by uh, buying it on eBay the same way they would Pez dispensers or old issues of the Twilight Zone magazine. Uh, it's just really delightful. I guess I should uh, highlight another fact, which is that like so many other things, this phenomenon has come out of reality television. There's a 2014 <laughs> episode of Shipping Wars on A&E. Uh, now, Shipping Wars is not a show about people competing to uh, write erotica about Kirk and Spock, but rather uh, the exciting Although... world of people getting stressed out about shipping, which for anyone who works in the hobby game industry is not a vacation to watch that. No. <laughs> <laughs> if you've ever shown up at Gen Con on a Thursday and your books haven't, you don't need to watch Shipping Wars. But lots of people do watch Shipping Wars, and there's a particular episode where they get really stressed out about transporting a haunted object. And so that's uh, that's apparently where all of this has, has come from. And raises, uh, I guess, the other question of how long will this continue to be a phenomenon, right? Are there... Uh, have the availability of cursed clowns uh, decreased after peaking after 2014, and now they're, they're 
source of evil dolls has has run out and that might you know that might be another scenario hook is uh your uh cursed doll business is running out of inventory what do you do to go and create more haunted dolls and how do the player characters stop you i think that there, there's another strong possibility because it's, it's a one-off episode of shipping wars and it's about this one sort of outside ups person i guess or whatever who suddenly discovers that they're shipping a cargo and i cannot emphasize this enough a cargo of haunted dolls across the country <laughs> once again supply much higher than i ever would have envisioned and demand much higher than i would have ever envisioned the whole marketplace is actually the, the the strongest argument yet that we live in a world with competing bands of evil sorcerers right because who what the heck but there's also a and, japanese and, and what that also speaks to sorry to interrupt for a moment is when we watch a horror movie, we go, why did they stay in that house? Um, you know, why don't they get rid of that evil doll? But here it's like people are actively seeking evil dolls and bits of, uh, of haunted houses. And that uh, really what we need in our next uh, horror movie about a haunted house is that one of the obstacles is all of the souvenir hunters who are swarming the place trying to get stuff. And uh, you're trying to tell, no, no, don't. We must end the contagion rely on us ghostbusters to put this spirit to hey put that down <laughs> uh there there was a japanese manga called the kurosagi corpse delivery service which i thought was about a different thing it's actually sort of a weird supernaturally kind of ghost whisperer thing where they find out what the ghosts wanted and then they go off and they do their bidding which often entangles them in hilarious or criminal activity but the notion that the delivery service that would be like the bespoke delivery service. So you don't always use UHL, UPS or DHL or whatever. You use a, a bespoke delivery service that is basically got some degree of capacity to handle cargoes of haunted dolls or the trucks uh, are all warded and necromancer coffins or whatever. They got pentacles on the trucks. They've got, you know, forms that, uh, you know, when you sign it, you take on all the haunting so that none of the residual sticks to the, to the shipper. But of course, as you know, you know, from watching shipping wars or being involved in the gaming industry, shipping is always going wrong. And so something involving either a crew that is always screwed because they're on the like Arkham to Chicago route or something, or the crew that is meant to be sort of the insurance fraud investigator guys who work for your occult shippers. These guys that go around and they, and they sort of have to look into each of the transactions and figure out what went wrong with it. You know, why did that truck get, you know, sucked into an interdimensional vortex? Uh, they, they were supposed, the wards were good. And so you can be solving these sort of, questions and you're not involved in the war between good and evil necromancers it's like no 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 we're a shipping company we don't take sides so you can have sort of a a third party view of it and then either the arc is you get drawn into the war anyway or the arc is you get out you get to open up that you know hunting lodge in wyoming that you've always dreamed of far away from anything haunted uh and, and, or or however it is that your your character goals are and again this could be a nice uh, drama system thing, or it could be a fun, uh, ongoing, uh, gumshoey investigation sort of a game where you're trying to figure out what went wrong with this given magical shipment. And even without it, you could sort of introduce these guys as a group of, of GMCs or a GMC organization into any game that you have that has sort of an occult world. It's like, oh, the shipping guys are here. What? They're, we have shipping guys? And then that sets up a, a fun story and maybe gives you some more hooks and, and some more people to start plying for aid and information. Right. Well, you've always got a ticking clock if you're shipping an, an item. Uh, you know, it's a, oh, it's a 24-hour delivery. 
but the exorcist who was supposed to meet us here, his flight's been delayed. He got bumped. So do we leave without the exorcist? I guess we have to. And there you go. Um, and, and I guess as we've already alluded to, the only challenge here is that you would have to find a game designer to create this game who has only worked in the PDF format. Right. Because otherwise it's going to be too, too close to home. And on that note, uh, I think it's time for us to uh, deliver this podcast into the uh, waiting ears of the uh, audio deities and uh, wave goodbye. And we'll be back uh, next week, uh, hopefully with uh, a shipment that contains no evil clown dolls whatsoever. Or very few. Yeah, very few. Uh, well, it's it's like, uh, you know, particulate contamination. Trace elements. Will con- yeah, trace elements. 3% or less of evil clown dolls. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Askfagam. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semble. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash canonrobin. Ship your evil clans with confidence alongside such patrons as... Jason Franzella. Neil Dalton. Oren Gashuri. Paul Richmond. And Rafe Ball. Snag Canon Robin Apparel and other erudite merchandise. At tpublic.com slash user slash Robin. New designs include... Okay, okay, I carved the yellow sign into one lousy potato. And Cat Hamlet Half-Off Robot. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. Stuff.